3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855am. It is... uh, it is Thursday, the 17th of August. Good morning, Spike. Morning, Priya. How are you going? I'm going okay. Um, it was. I heard people in the cafe this morning saying that it is uh, surprisingly warm today. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Every morning when I wake up and come here in the winter now, I mean, I haven't been doing breakfast for that many years, but I can already feel it, you know, the way that it's changed year on year, <laughs> being like, hmm... Don't need to get the gloves out. This is very existentially concerning. It, uh, yesterday was incredibly, it was cold, and today it's a lot more mild. But, yeah, I hear what you're saying about the temperature. Not Like yesterday, uh, at about midday, mm-hmm. the last, it's been really warm. It's been incredibly warm for this time of year. Yeah, it's... Um Oh, oh it my is gosh. scary. Yeah, there's, and I, I think like you know, this is something that I'm hoping might be a feature of the show going forwards is having more conversations about, um, you know, not just the actions that we can do for climate justice and to like end environmental destruction, but also some of those tougher conversations about how we also support ourselves and each other through this because this is a massive period of change, and you know, um, climate change effects are still going to be. Um, quite severe even if everything ceases right now but uh rather than dive uh into that and, can of worms and oh, just and developing those developing those relationships to support each other during this time because it's you know like yeah it, it's it, it's yeah it's definitely like i'm noticing it mm. we're talking about it and i'm sure other people must be noticing yeah absolutely i mean this is something that we um there's one um There's one side of climate denial, which is uh, denying that human-induced climate change is real. But then there's like an internal bit of denial, which is trying to, you know, move through processes of change that you know are happening, but not quite knowing how to how to deal with that. Yeah. So first up on today's show, uh, we're going to be continuing this week's breakfast radio coverage of Artificial Intelligence for Science Week uh, by hearing a segment of the For the Wild podcast where host Ayana Young is joined by artist and writer James Bridal in a conversation that considers AI and multiple forms of intelligence. Looking at research into forms of intelligence from artificial to mycelial, James posits that it is a crucial failure to use human intelligence as the benchmark for all forms of knowing. You next. <laughs> no, you're all good, Spike. Oh, so the second, uh, yeah. the second segment. Sorry, sorry. We will hear the two uh, part two of a pre-recorded interview with Megan Fitzgerald from uh, Fitzroy Legal Service about the coronial inquest into the passing of, of Veronica Nelson. This week's episode reflects on the war on drugs, intersectionality, lived experience, and findings from the Muirhead Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Please be advised that this that this interview contains content that you might. May 
may find distressing. And if you wish to speak with someone about any of the issues mentioned in the interview, you can call Lifeline on 131114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. Or for First Nations listeners, you can call 13YARN. That's 139276 uh, for dedicated mob-only support 24-7. Yeah, and after that, we are going to be joined by Jasmine Barzani from Campaign Against Racism and Fascism to talk about an upcoming protest event that CARF is holding to drive the Nazis out of so-called Melbourne. So a few weeks ago, we had fellow CARF member Amelia on to discuss CARF's planned protest against the National Socialist Network's white power lifting meet at the Legacy Boxing Gym in Sunshine West, which was a massive success. That uh, turnout was incredible in Sunshine West um, and really... Uh, really made uh, the neo-Nazis out there look uh, pretty small. Um, Good on them. And uh, so today, Jasmine's going to recap what went down on the day and talk about the importance of building a more sustained and widespread movement against anti-fascism in Melbourne, as well as to tell us a bit about the protest that is coming up on Saturday, the 23rd of September, and how listeners can start getting prepared to attend now. And then after that, we are going to be joined by Professor Nicholas Davis, Industry Professor of Emerging Technology at the University of Technology, Sydney, and co-director of UTS Human Technology Institute, along with Professor Edward Santo. And uh, Nick is going to speak with us about what it means to regulate the use of artificial intelligence in Australia, including the regulatory mechanisms we already have in place that pertain to AI. Uh, and also we'll have JR from the Renters and Housing Union who will join us to extend the conversation we had on the show during last week's Homelessness Week special discussing Rahu's campaigns and advocacy work. We'll also get the chance to speak about yesterday's housing announcements by National Cab what sorry, what the housing announcements by National Cabinet really mean and touch base on some of the negative impacts of artificial intelligence in the hands of landlords and the real estate industry. Yeah, so stay tuned. We've got a packed yeah. show. Um, once again, you're on Thursday morning breakfast on uh, 3CR 855 AM, and it is 7.06 in the morning. The Chilean community, in partnership with the AMWU's International Solidarity Initiative, is holding a commemorative event for the 50th anniversary of Chile's coup, September 11, the day that changed us forever. Join generations of Chilean refugees, exiles and recent arrivals together with Australian unionists and activists in the Solidarity Movement for a night of testimonies, speakers, poetry and music on Monday, September 11 from 6pm at Solidarity Hall at the Victorian Trades Hall. This event will be held in English and all are welcome. To register, search for Chile 50 Years on eventbrite.com.au. Chile, 50 years of solidarity and struggle. A 3CR supporter. These are the news headlines for Thursday, the 17th of August. Listeners, please be advised that the following headline may be distressing to First Nations peoples. On Thursday last week, a sacred birthing tree was vandalized, prompting renewed calls to safeguard the cultural heritage site. Since 2018, advocates and protesters have been campaigning to protect the sacred birthing trees located on Jaboran country just outside Ararat in Victoria. The some 800-year-old trees were set to be destroyed by a major highway project announced by the Victorian government in 2013. The vandalism touted a pro-highway sentiment reading, quote, build the road, end quote, leaving the sacred tree trunk marked with paint and gouged with multiple drill holes. 
Traditional owners hold serious concerns that the holes could signify an attempt to poison the ancient tree. After lengthy legal battles, the birthing trees are now protected under Section 12 of the Federal Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Heritage Protection Act 1984. Despite these protections, however, Senator Lydia Thorpe has called on Federal Environment and Heritage Minister Tanya Plibersek to secure the sacred sites further, stating that protective fencing and surveillance systems have been removed by the state Andrews government. The Eastern Mar Corporation has offered a $10,000 reward for any information that could lead to a direct prosecution and conviction of individuals responsible. Wow. Uh, Sorry. Uh, In national news, the state and territorial leaders met this week in Brisbane to focus on addressing Australia's housing crisis. However, despite Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's Twitter announcement yesterday that, quote, National Cabinet has just announced the most significant reform to housing policy in a generation, housing academics and activists have been left questioning whether the changes go far enough. On Tuesday, Guardian Australia reported that the National Cabinet had come to an agreement on uniform national standards for renters' rights, with a consensus on limiting rent increases to once a year and establishing a genuine, uh, a re- establishing the requirement for a genuine, reasonable grounds for eviction. In the case of mid-lease, in case of mid-lease termination, however, limits on the frequency of rent increases and and an end to no-grounds evictions are already in place across most Australian jurisdictions, with the exception of Western Australia and the Northern Territory. Wednesday's National Cabinet announcements also included the creation of a federal incentive payment to states and territories of up to $3 billion billion or $15,000 per new home if they support reaching a national target of 1.2 million new, new homes built over five years. This is an update to the previous target of 1 million homes over five years from July 2024, which was established at at last year's National Housing Accord. Early on Wednesday, Green spokesman for housing Max Chandler Mother stated that limiting the frequency of rent increases to once every 12 months will make little difference for the vast majority of renters in this country. Advocates, including the Greens, have continued to emphasise the need for a cap on rent increases as a stronger protective measure for renters. Additionally, while the Prime Minister has claimed that an increase in private housing supply will put downward pressure on rents, experts continue to question whether a continued reliance on the private market can deliver genuinely affordable homes at the scale and speed required to tackle the housing crisis head-on. Also in headlines... Anti-Poverty Centre and GetUp have published a new report this week bringing to light the harms of, quote, mutual obligations for Social Security recipients. The report, titled Punishment for Profit, provides an insight into both the detrimental effects on welfare recipients of being forced to engage with employment service providers and the limited employment outcomes associated with these providers. As part of the report research, Anti-Poverty Centre surveyed 600 welfare recipients to investigate their experiences of being subjected to, quote, mutual obligations. Findings include the damning revelation that only 8 of 111 respondents saying that their job agency had helped them get a job, with 85% of respondents noting that their payments had been negatively affected by either a job agency mistake or another job agency-related issue. On the well-being front, 93.35% of respondents said that, quote, mutual obligations have a negative effect on their mental health, with anxiety and stress the most commonly noted experiences. 
The report's recommendations include bringing an end to compulsory, quote, mutual obligations activities and instead implementing a holistic and community-led approach to develop locally controlled social and employment services that are integrated across health, legal, housing, union and related areas. Anti-Poverty Center also reiterated the call to increase income support payments above the Henderson poverty line and for government investment in quality public housing and support for cooperative housing options. Reflecting on the report's findings, President of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union Jeremy Haywood said, quote, Volunteer and underfunded advocacy groups like the Anti-Poverty Centre and the Australian Unemployed Workers Union spend thousands of hours each year supporting our communities to defend their rights and dignity and writing beautifully detailed and comprehensive reports telling the government the same simple truths. Mutual obligations are a punitive system built on a flawed and cruel ideology, end quote. And finally, news headlines. Last night, the Matildas lost to England for the chance to compete in the World Cup finals. After getting closer than any Australian soccer team, after getting closer than any Australian soccer team in history, England's national team, the Lionesses, led the game with an opening shot by Alatoon, 36 minutes in. After this initial setback, hope for the Matildas was briefly restored by Sam Kerr, who scored an equaliser on the hour with a run and strike shot from 25 metres. Less than 10 minutes later, the Lionesses scored an additional shot, cementing their victory despite the Matildas. Oh, sorry, despite the Matildas' efforts for second for a second equaliser. England finished with the third goal from Alicia Russo, just four minutes to time, defeating the Matildas with with a two-goal advantage. Despite the disappointment, sporting legacy created by the team lives on. In addition to being the first Australian soccer team to make it to the World Cup semi-finals, the Matildas are also the first team to take part in a Pride initiative during, interna- during an international match. In, fe- in, Feb- in February early- earlier this year, the Matildas marched into Parramatta Stadium to proudly unveil rainbow numbers on the backs of their jerseys. A record number of LGBTQ plus players have graced the fields this season with almost 12% of the 736 World Cup players identifying as lesbian. The Matildas are set to, v- to verse Sweden in the World Cup third, match play- third place match and you can catch that game this Saturday, August 19 from 6pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. These have been the news headlines for Thursday the 17th of August. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Now, just to uh, build on what we were speaking about, about mutual obligations and um, about that report from Anti-Poverty Centre, and once again with the uh, disclosure that I am a member of Anti-Poverty Centre as well, um, I just wanted to extend solidarity to Kristen O'Connell in light of the uh, pretty appalling coverage in a segment of Media Watch uh, over the past few days, um, which appeared to be a sort of targeted attack on Social Security recipients. We've seen this happen um, quite a bit in terms of individualizing what is actually a structural problem. Um, and, you know, really, um, really just reiterating the old doll bludger myth, right? I think yeah. it's... Um, it's absolutely um, shameful to see mainstream media continue to play into this um, this kind of reporting um, to attempt to discredit folks who are doing work that actually amplifies the 
you know, the systemic issues uh, around Social Security and the way that people who are experiencing poverty um, are experiencing it because of political choices that are made to not allocate, um, you know, the resources that this very wealthy country has yeah. uh, towards folks who are, uh, you know, struggling. Yeah, this is the way the machine goes after people that it feels threatened by. And that, that's what makes, um, um, you know, places like 3CR so important because we, you know, generally the, the general public doesn't have the access to the resources uh, and access to the media, you know, mach- I guess the machine mm. to, to reply and respond to this. But that's what makes community radio so important that we can discuss this and really pull, pull the pull the blind down mm. and really show show it for che- for what it is. It's like cheap gutter journalism. Yeah, absolutely. And something that I think is so discouraging about this kind of um you know, gutter journalism is that it really it it disincentivizes people to speak up about their experiences of the system. You know, we talked about the mutual obligations report, um, and it's really fantastic work that Anti Poverty Center have done to bring together all of these experiences um, that people have had that we've seen reported time and time again by individuals within the system. But that's really helpful to have in a collected form. Um, you know, but. This kind of reporting really, you know, makes people not want to come forward and tell their stories, especially if their name can be um, put to it, if if they're identifiable and if there's uh, the risk of somebody doing a background check to attempt to dig up dirt on them that is not even necessarily relevant to their, their... their experiences. Yeah, it's gross. It's offensive, and just, it's just, I guess, it, it's, uh, it exhibits um, what the links that people, that I guess, the system will go to to undermine any threat to its, um, yeah, to the way that it works. And you know, it's really hard, like working with people that are having those experience, that, those sort of traumatic experiences, really hard work. I mean, I mean it's, uh, it, it, yeah, I, I guess bearing witness to what. The effects of not having a proper living wage and um, the way the system works, bearing witness to that can be, it's hard for the people, of course, that are going through it, but trying to provide support to people, you know, consistently Mm. and at a good, you know, like at a good level, it's really hard work. And for them to go out of their way to target someone in that way, it just, I guess it illustrates who they are. Yeah. And, you know, this once again um, is an example now from, uh, I guess, our our national broadcaster doing this. When earlier this year, we also saw the targeting of Australian Unemployed Workers Union President Jeremy Haywood by Ben Fordham on his radio show, calling him job seeker jazz and uh, basically sending reporters to uh, to jazz's house, um, you know, causing issues with Jez's elderly parents. It is really just appalling seeing people being targeted like this, people that are doing the actual meaningful work to try and change the conditions for millions of people. That's effectively his bullying. Exactly. It is horrifying seeing these hit pieces put out. So we just want to extend, again, our yeah. solidarity to, uh, you know, all of the incredible anti-poverty advocates, including Kristen and Jez, and all of those folks who may not be affiliated with any, you know, formal organizing from the grassroots, but who are speaking out about their experiences in order to make change. I guess you could wear it as a badge of honor that in the sense that, like, obviously this is getting to them. To, to getting to them, but at the same time, it's 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 you know it, it, it's distressing. Yeah, and you know, 
it's I, I feel like the folks that put themselves on the line every single day to raise these concerns, mm-hmm. um, you know, just have miles more integrity yeah. and resilience uh, to be able to fight the system because God forbid anybody come after any of the, the journalists or informants, right? Yeah. Um, so you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijoma Umbinyo Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Ayan every Monday at 2.30pm on 3CR Community Radio. We're now going to hear a segment of the For the Wild podcast where host Ayana Young is joined by artist and writer James Bridal in a conversation that considers AI and multiple forms of intelligence. Looking at research into forms of intelligence, from artificial to mycelial, James posits that it is a critical failure to use human intelligence as the benchmark for all forms of knowing. James Bridal is an artist, writer, and publisher whose work deals with the ways in which digital networked worlds reach into the physical offline one. The For the Wild podcast is an anthology of the Anthropocene, focused on a paradigm shift away from human supremacy, endless growth, and consumerism. There's this incredible total communication and awareness going on all around us all the time at every single level of life. Intelligence is way, way more interesting than anything we could build in a box. But for some reason, we always seem to need to build the box first. We always seem to need to make these kind of toy versions of things before suddenly then we start to recognize that they're already all around us in the world. James Bridal is a writer, artist, and technologist. James, thanks so much for joining us today. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, Thanks very much for having me. Lovely to be here. Looking forward to jumping into AI and algorithms. And as we begin, I want to think through some of the mm, insidious and invisible ways algorithms and AI shape our lives. So to start the conversation, I'm wondering how the goals and programs of these algorithms are tailored to a specific view of the world and who and what are these algorithms serving? Well, I mean, that's a pretty broad place to start, but not a bad one uh, in the sense that, I mean, you know, they, these are these are quite vague terms, AI, algorithms, things like this, but then they're always kind of intentionally vague. I think when, when, you, when you hear them being deployed, there's always... Something that's kind of missing in the conversation, like some kind of level of understanding or some level of specificity that really matters. But, you know, the, the, the place that we hear them deployed the most is in mostly these days in relationship with like the big tech company. So, you know, I mean, pretty much anything you do that involves touching a computer, you know, and not just the obvious ones. I mean, like the ATMs or even the computer in your car, because most cars are computers. Those, those are algorithms. An algorithm just means a computer program. Um, it's, it's any bit of computing machinery, which is kind of throughout all these parts of our lives these days. But mostly what we, what we hear when we talk about that is, is, you know, the kind of the stuff that's made by companies, because that's who makes most of the tech in the world around us. And so, of course, then 
you know they're they're making those programs as part of a part of kind of profit systems systems that at some level are trying to make a profit make money and that money largely out of us you know every time we use a computer system there's an expectation that somewhere somewhere is is benefiting from our use of that and so some profit is being extracted and that means that so many of the systems of you know in the world around us are built with this you know need to extract or exploit at some level built into their very basic philosophy they don't come from a place of cooperation or collaboration they come you know pretty much explicitly from places of exploitation um and I, i think you know most of us are kind of aware of that these days we know that that our use of of things for free on the internet search engines and so on come with a kind of cost to our privacy um you know but that logic is embedded in every aspect of our lives it's not a sort of technology question but a question of capitalism you know, get money off at the grocery store if you use your loyalty card right which is just the same exchange of personal data for some kind of discount um and and that logic has been so kind of imbued into our everyday lives that you know, always notice when it extends into into kind of bigger things as well and you know one of those places is now contemporary artificial intelligence and we can talk about what that means i put very very large scare quotes around ai at this point but the ai that we all hear about at the moment is that made by these very large tech companies you know whose um whose position is the same they're looking to make money out of this thing and they're breeding a kind of intelligence that is based on this kind of profit motive and you know my my feeling and i'm sure we'll go into this is that that kind of intelligence or rather that idea of intelligence is just this incredibly narrow one we expect it from our uh, interactions with capital in various forms that these kind of expectation of exploitation is built in but i think it becomes a very different thing when uh, when we're kind of interacting with things that claim to be intelligent but also have this kind of intensely predatory basis built into them um but that's the world that certain sectors of the world are trying to construct at the moment and that I think is very poorly understood. I want to go uh, into a quote from your book Ways of Being and you write that's what happens. It would seem when the development of AI is led primarily by venture-funded technology companies, the definition of intelligence which is framed, endorsed and ultimately constructed in machines as a profit-seeking extractive one. This framing is then repeated in our books and films and the news media and the public imagination in science fiction tales of robot overlords and all-powerful irresistible algorithms until it comes to dominate our thinking and understanding. We seem incapable of imagining intelligence any other way. End quote. I'd love to hear how has this control and development of AI by venture capitalists hijacked our capacity to imagine intelligence beyond exponential growth well because they started with things long before intelligence um you know we 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 seem very incapable of imagining really society beyond a, a paradigm of exponential growth but i think it's quite um quite understandable how a vision of intelligence has kind of been hijacked in that way what where you see it coming out most strongly at the moment is looking at the areas in which you know this this thing that gets called ai by a certain sector of industry really gets applied and it gets applied to things that they find interesting but also often things that they they think are sort of you know easy or or kind of low value in certain ways so what we had was a you know a long period of where ai was largely about um 
games of various kinds, you know, playing chess, playing Go, playing these kind of things. And you get AI being applied to, to service industries, logistics, things that again are seen as kind of low status or low skilled driving actually being one of them, although it turns out to have been much, much more complicated than they ever imagined, as most of these things do. Um, and now the latest wave is hitting at the level of kind of secretarial work, data work, uh, at the level of language, things like chat GPT, uh, but also critically, I think, at this level of image generation, because again, you have this idea from the perspective of technology companies that, that that's something that must be easy, right? That's something that's for, for people who trade in algorithms and mathematics exclusively, that that kind of visual creativity is also something easy, something low status that can be conquered in, in this way. Like none of these things are easy, in fact. Like there's there's lots of really interesting things that happens when this gets applied to games. Things get more complicated. Things get more interesting. Um, turns out it's very very difficult to apply to real world things like driving. That's actually been you know not a huge success. And it, you know it's it's um, a totally different thing when it gets applied to writing or to image making to creation. What we think of as these very human forms of creation as well. But they have such sort of power and glamour in society that also gets taken very seriously. And so you get a kind of degradation of those forms. Um, you get an even kind of lower status assigned to the kinds of work that these companies direct AI at, whether that's, you know, driving increased kind of automation of um, delivery, logistics services, whether that's kind of delivery things, whether it's taxi driving, all these kind of things. Um, also now getting applied to the things that were regarded as, as kind of creative professions as well. Even though the product is still terrible, there's just, you know, the power and the glamour of these things. They're, they're, the fact that they get wrapped up into these strange technological terms make them um, capable of still twisting our idea of, I guess, what's important and what matters about these things on a very deep level. Yeah, it's complicated. And... There's another piece that you wrote, The Great Distractor. You say, quote, to actually interfere with the money-making algorithm at the level required to actually protect children, democracy, and our sanity would mean reducing the scale of their business. For a company whose business is scale, which cannot operate except at scale, that presents an existential threat. Treating the problem would mean they would cease to exist, end quote. So yeah, I just want to riff on the issue with seeing profit as godlike or a guiding principle here. Because if that's the basis of the project, you know, what are people not willing to do? Yeah, I mean, it's worth putting that um, quote into a bit of context, I think. So that was part of a kind of ongoing work um, about contemporary media um, and about the way online video, content, creativity works. And very specifically, a, a lot of studies I've done of um, uh, children's media online, things like YouTube for kids, uh, the way small children use media, and the way that that's the media ecosystem, particularly things like YouTube, has been like shaped around them. And so what you have happening there is that you have um, what gets called the attention economy, or surveillance capitalism, which is a system for making money off getting people's attention, quite simply. Um, the more eyeballs in the terminology that are on a thing, the more money will be made. And then when that system is largely automated, really, really weird and often quite terrible stuff starts happening. I, you know, first encountered it really strongly and wrote quite a lot about what happens when that happens to like kids' content. So you get children's cartoons that are increasingly 
uh, designed partly by humans, but also partly by the kind of feedback loops of these profit machines to get longer, to get stranger, to get more addictive for small children in very unhealthy ways. And that sometimes also are then susceptible to really nasty content, violent content, sexual content being kind of threaded into them. But the system at that point becomes so complex and large that no one really understands what's going on. It's very hard to intervene. And to intervene would mean shutting the system down. Now, I think the system should mostly be shut down in that case. Um, We're in this very weird position now where technology and the technological companies behind them have got such kind of momentum that it's almost impossible to imagine that you would just shut them down. So this isn't just isn't just a problem for like children's media, although it is a huge problem with children's media. It's a problem for all of us. It's well documented now that there's a kind of radicalization process that happens when people view content online uh, that is ordered for them algorithmically, whether that's kind of YouTube videos or the Facebook news feed. Because that system wants you to watch more, it ends up showing you more and more extreme content. So people get pushed into like positions of very extreme radicality, whether that's the far right uh, religious extremism, um, or just kind of absolutely insane conspiracy theories. The algorithm wants you to pay more attention. It will feed you more extreme content, and your position will be moved to this more and more extreme place. And you know, my counterexample for that is always like, you know, imagine there was a stop, a shop on your local high street, your, your main street, whatever it is. You know, and one in ten people who went in there um, came out believing in the supremacy of the white race, like we would shut it down. (laughs) It's just fundamentally um, something that we would say, like, there's all kinds of complex issues here, but we should stop this particular thing being present within our society. And we seem really incapable of doing that within technological cultures that exist at the moment um, because of this kind of weird glamour that technology has, uh, this claim that people don't really understand it fully, that people are scared to, like, speak about it fully, um, that it's somehow disconnected from our culture. And you see this happening now again. You know, as I said, I've been writing about this extensively about television media, children's cartoons, but also adult social media, whatever it is. You see it happening now with AI, that you have what are not intelligent at all, but are like very powerful computer systems fed on the last couple of decades of all of our personal information being kind of unleashed into the world with what will be huge consequences. And what we actually have is is the people building it going around the world telling us that like the robot overlords are coming and we should worry about that and not about the kind of incredibly predatory forms of profit extraction that they're actually doing. Uh, it's the most extraordinary piece of kind of misdirection that they've attempted in some time um, and is very blatant and it seems to be working very well. But it's, um, yeah, it's just, it's such a strange thing that capitalism in its current form is just so good at moving onto these new territories, as it always does, while we are seeming capable of sort of talking meaningfully or, or directly about it. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And you just heard a segment of the For the Wild podcast where host Ayana Young was joined by artist and writer James Bridal to talk about AI and multiple forms of intelligence. Looking at research into forms of intelligence from artificial to mycelial, James posits that it is a critical failure to use human intelligence as the benchmark for all forms of knowing. James is an artist, writer, and publisher whose work deals with the ways in which the digital networked world reaches into the physical offline one. 
The For the Wild podcast is an anthology of the Anthropocene focused on a paradigm shift away from human supremacy, endless growth, and consumerism. And we will have a link in our show notes to that episode so you can hear the rest. Uh, and next, we'll hear the second part of the two-part interview with Megan Fitzgerald from Fitzroy Legal Service about the findings from the coronial inquest into the passing of proud Gunditjmara Jajawarong Wiradjuri and Yorta Yorta woman Veronica Nelson on January 2nd, 2020. I'd just like to say that I've been contacted by Megan um, during the week, and she says... That Veronica's family is really like, you know, is really happy that we're discussing the, the issue. That that the that the you know that the facts that have come out of the inquest that they want they want us to be talking about this stuff. Um, they believe it's important that we don't forget the First Nation what, that what First Nations people are exposed to in the name of colonial justice. Also, again, a reminder: a sensitive content warning. The interview with Megan will be discussing Indigenous deaths in custody, and if you find the content triggering or you know have any sort of issues, I guess you can contact. There's also Lifeline one three double one one four or one three hundred yarn if uh, for for Indigenous folks. Yeah, that's twenty four seven. And the second part of the interview sort of concentrates on more on drugs, intersectionality, lived experience, the importance of lived experience, and the Muirhead Royal Commission into deaths in custody. Thanks, Meg. Can you tell us how the war on drugs and the way the legal system punishes people for their health conditions impacted Veronica's case? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's quite a interesting issue. One of the things that happened in the genesis of getting involved in this case is we were watching the George Floyd case and um, in the Black Lives Matter movement. And one of the bits of evidence that came out is that when um, the police were arresting him, they'd said to bystanders, "This is what happen if happens if you use drugs." kids and that intersectionality is really important you know um so the war on drugs it it's it's always going to be controversial from a number of angles but i think that there is some broad consensus that trauma plays quite a substantial role in drug dependence and destigmatizing that is quite important to us like you know people have experienced like I've worked with the Drug Outreach Lawyer Program for 17 years in different capacities. And um, people have lived through things that would... You just can't believe that they're the beautiful people that they are. You know, that they're showing up to life and um, not hurting people. And, you know, yes, they might be engaging in a lot of dishonesty offending, but um, they really need support. Um, and opportunities to live lives of contribution. Housing is one of the most critical things, safe housing. Um, access to treatment when you need it, of, of what you want, you know, not, not what someone else dictates. What's is, available. Is, yeah, and you don't want to have these big delays or, you know, these extraordinary kind of loops where you need to answer, um, you know, people don't hold on to a mobile phone for more than two weeks, you know. they, You know, there's just, if someone says, oh, well, yeah, we can see you in six weeks, for that person, their heart is in their gut and it's over, you know, and they're just back out there. Um, and it's very clear that the most vulnerable people 
are the ones who get caught up in the criminal justice system. I'm not saying all people who use drugs, but the people who are in the criminal justice system, they have a lot of trauma, a lot of complex vulnerability, and they've experienced a lot of violence often. And it's really, really important that we as a community, I think particularly with First Nations people, take on that responsibility morally, you know, of where that violence came from. Um, So one of the things that's the kind of willful blindness of further punishing someone who has been um, so profoundly injured by the legal system and, and colonial violence, that's something that we really need to take a long, hard look at and um, change our approach completely. Like, like, you know, investing money in private prisons and it's just crazy and it's immoral and it's tragic and it just continues the offence, you know, like we're continuing the, the, the genocidal violence, yeah. violence and, and we're responsible for that as a nation. Earlier you mentioned intersectionality. Can you tell us a bit more about that, Meg, and what you meant by the term? Yeah, so the way that um, the human rights laws have kind of developed over time is that they look at just one unit of, um, so that, you know, that happened because you're a person of colour, that happened because you're Aboriginal. Um, But what was, what tends to be the case is it's a combination of things. And um, this, this particular coroner actually included and and the previous coroner included a range of attributes that were contributing together to um so so so, and that's a much more realistic kind of look at the way it is so it it was looking in this particular case that um veronica's gender as a woman um also her aboriginal identity her substance dependence and the stigma and discrimination around that and um, also... Just a little bit about that. Yeah, so there's... Um, so, so one reason why we got... Why we put in our application for standing was because we were... Was a drug outreach lawyer, which I mentioned. We've also uh, had a prisoner legal advice for a clin- clinic for over 20 years. It's in a change period at the moment, but because the need is so great and there's so little that it's available. Um, and we also had a leadership group of women who done time in um, women's prisons um, who were doing a lot of work with Fitzroy Legal Service because part of our um, commitment is to be driven by the community that we and and to really incorporate in a meaningful way the communities that we serve. Mink, can you tell us what role lived experience played in Veronica's inquest and how important is it for systems, institutions and organisations to be informed by lived experience? I think it's it's recognising that the people who have the lived experience um, have uh, the most profound expertise and anything that is sort of constructed in their absence is theoretical until it's been um, tested with a range of people who actually have lived through the experience. So you can have a great idea... Or an idea, but it's it's not real until you um, speak to the people who have lived the experience. And that was another very significant part of this case, which was, I, I think it might be one of the first times, I've, I haven't been able to find any other cases where um, we were able to get lived experience of imprisonment and all those intersectional factors, gender and uh, 
criminal law antecedents, um, an Aboriginal identity, someone's lived experience, and of being in the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, being um, a type of cultural expertise that was given a lot of gravity in the court. Um, it was it was uh, treated as very important evidence, and that was from Arnie Vicky Roach, and we're really grateful for her to, to her for for contributing that because it was very difficult. Of course, it's very difficult work to do. There was a Royal Commission into uh, Aboriginal deaths in custody in the 80s, and some of the findings in there is that um, prison should be a last resort. That you know, a process of reconciliation needs to be undertaken. Um, there was a hot, there was 339 recommendations. How do we? What's happened that we haven't done anything about this situation, Meg? I think I can only express my own opinion. Um, one thing is the coroner did say if the recommendations had been implemented, Veronica would not have passed. Um, but I think it comes back to that there's a pathological kind of denial of responsibility for, and it manifests really strongly in the carceral state and we're still engaged in the same behaviour in a different manifestation. I believe absolutely we are. As, as, as a nation and um, I think that that is um, that is hopefully going to change with treaty I mean I, I you know hopefully we're changing I can see things changing but it also is uh, it's really important that these communities these criminalized communities are really kept right in the center of of that. Um, and that their experience and suffering is understood in its full context as a, as a consequence of colonisation and genocide. If people want to read your article, Meg, where can they find it? And if, they want to, if, they, if they're interested in what we've been discussing, where's an outlet for people to get involved? Is there, an, is there a way that people can get involved in finding out more about what's happening to you know, First Nations people and the law and... Yeah, uh, I think the first thing would be to go onto the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service uh, Facebook site and get behind Pockham's Law because that's the number one request of the family of Veronica is is that those reforms are really um, pushed hard and the government is it should be a, it should be a state of emergency and anybody can support expressing that by writing to their local member and to the Attorney-General and saying, state of emergency, could you please act on this immediately? Um, because as long as it continues, we've already got a finding that has said that this is systemically racist and it is an absolute risk to the life of the people who go into custody. The state has an obligation to take proactive steps to preserve life under the human rights legislation, so um, that's one way. Another way is to um, engage with uh, harm reduction peak bodies as well. Um, there's Harm Reduction Australia, Harm Reduction Victoria, and just lend your, lend your, um, not your opinion, but your um, presence to, to the advocacy that they're doing because it's still a very marginalised uh, pressure point that we need to push really hard on. Um, and there's some really clear demands that the coroner's not 
demands recommendations that the coroners put around uh, equivalent care and custody that people would for people who use drugs reviewing all of those policy policies to eradicate the stigma and discrimination that's embedded in them um, making sure that people do get appropriate treatment the minute they get in there that aboriginal people have access to appropriate culturally appropriate treatment the minute that they have contact with the system, that there's training all the way through the justice system to try and reorientate people to understand in a deeper way what their obligations are when someone says, I'm Aboriginal, because under the Bail Act that is supposed to be a specific consideration that should support someone receiving bail um, because of deaths in custody being a a risk. Um, but I, I, I think the other thing is that what the Royal Commission to Aboriginal Deaths in Custody also saw was that, or said, observed really clearly, is that it's the numbers of people who are Aboriginal who are being shepherded into the criminal justice system that results in the over-representation through deaths. So I think it's understanding that this is not one-off. It's not like because one copper was racist or because um, someone in custody... That might be happening, but this is a systemic issue and it's about thinking, well, why are people going into custody and is it appropriate that they're in custody for those types of offences? So there might be another state where people are in custody because of unregistered vehicles or, you know, driving without a licence. These are not the crimes of of the century you know these are these are really and and when you see the harm that's being caused by people being overrepresented in this way it's just it's an indictment and needs to be incorporated as a moral responsibility that we deal with it immediately state you know in the territories and at a federal level and in close consultation with um aboriginal leadership and that was part two of a pre-recorded interview with Megan Fitzgerald from Fitzroy Legal Service about the coronial inquest into the passing in custody of Veronica Nelson. And this week's episode also reflected on the war on drugs, intersectionality, lived experiences and findings from the Muirhead Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Now, listeners, if this raised any issues for you, considering that it covered some distressing content, uh, you can speak with uh, someone about any of the issues mentioned on Lifeline on 131114, that's 131114, or you can contact Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636, that's 1300 224 636. And First Nations listeners can call 13 Yarn, that's 139276, for dedicated mob only support 24 7. Sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to remind people that if they're interested in supporting, there's, um, if, um, Something that came out of the interview, Meg said, the changes to bail bail laws or bail applications. There's a thing called Pockham's Law, P-O-C-O-M-S. So if you go to the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service Facebook website, you can, there's um yeah there's a a post there about Pockham's Law and how you can support um, changing um, bail applications. Yeah, absolutely. And I believe that Pockham was uh, the nickname that um, Auntie Auntie Donna Nelson gave Veronica. Um, yeah, Pockham. So Pockham's Law, this is for Veronica to change the bail laws. Um, so, so important. So thank you, Spike. No worries. And now we are joined by Jazz from Campaign Against Racism and Fascism to talk about an upcoming protest event that CARF is going to be holding to drive the Nazis out of so-called Melbourne. So a few weeks ago, we had fellow CARF member Amelia on to discuss CARF's planned protest against the National Socialist Network's, quote, white power lifting meet, end quote, at the Legacy Boxing Gym in Sunshine West, uh, which was 
obviously quashed by the massive anti-fascist turnout. So today, Jasmine's going to recap what went down on the day and talk about the importance of building a more sustained and widespread movement against fascism in Melbourne, as well as to tell us a bit about the protests coming up on Saturday, the 23rd of September, and how listeners can start getting prepared to attend. Good morning, Jasmine. Good morning, Priya. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Um, thank you so much for, for joining us. So um, I guess maybe we can start off with the, the recap of that last rally. Can you tell us a bit about um, about what went down and your reflections on what I think was a pretty big win and also a real display of fash cowardice? Definitely, yeah. It was a brilliant day for left-wing people. Um, so we had around 350 people out and we marched from... Uh, Sunshine, uh, there's an RGA in Sunshine West that we met at. We had some speeches there. And then we all marched over to the Nazi gym. Um, and on the way, it was really wonderful. We had all of these people coming out of their houses, cheering us on from their driveways, um, asking us about what we were doing, and then some of them even coming and joining in for a little bit. Um, we got to the gym, and once we got there, you know, we were hoping that uh, the fascists would be there and we'd be able to actually, uh, you know, confront them shout them down, these kind of things. We were told that uh, they were inside the gym, definitely, but there was such a small number of them that they were too uh, pathetic to feel like they could come out and actually face us. So Mm -hmm. they cowered in their gym. We had really wonderful speeches outside that were about the history of the anti-fascist movement, you know, so we talked about the battles against Pauline Hanson in the 90s, the massive campaigns um, in Lewisham, which has actually just recently seen the anniversary of the Battle for Lewisham, um, where, you know, in Britain, thousands and thousands of anti-fascists stared down the national front and chased them out um, of Clifton Rise. So we talked about some of this history while we were actually at the protest in order to, you know, learn from it and think through while we were at the gym, how do we build movements in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, it was just like a fantastic turnout and I think such a powerful showing of the importance of solidarity and the importance of having a physical presence um, out mm. on the streets, uh, you know, decrying fascism in our communities. So I guess on that, I was wondering if I could get your thoughts about the state of contemporary anti-fascism in so-called Australia. I know, um, you know, the pandemic uh, hitting in 2020 did see um, a bit of an ebb in uh our ability to organize on the streets. Um, But I was wondering about your thoughts um, about people's increasing involvement in anti-fascism and and how we get more people involved uh, and and speaking up. Yeah. Yeah, so a big part of what the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism wants to do is broaden out who participates in anti-fascist protests. We want to encourage uh, big, broad layers of people to come to these demonstrations and to join in. And so that informs a lot of the tactics that we use as well. You know, rather than holding secretive actions, we call public demonstrations. And we want to bring people out to stand against fascism, but also to stand against the racism, transphobia, misogyny, these kind of things that might affect their lives as well. We want to help them stand up against those things at the same time as standing up against the Nazis. So, yeah, for us, you know, during the pandemic, you're right, we saw this kind of ebb in our ability to actually seriously contend with the big kind of anti-fascist. The contemporary forum in Melbourne, the way they organise is this small, uh, the National Socialist Network. We can defeat them in the streets. So we regularly outnumber them whenever we march against them. And then they've also been doing other actions like 
uh, you know, trying to shut down drag story time events, things like that. So we think it's very important to, to be, as you said, physically organising against them, being there when they're out in the street, taking up the space, um, and also showing everyone around us and people who see it in the media that there's big, big groups of anti-fascists who are willing to come out and take a stand. Mm, yeah, definitely. And like, as you mentioned, um, they're kind of embedding, you know, the, the fascists are kind of embedding themselves in other conservative and reactionary kind of movements, including, uh, you know, anti-trans, anti, mm. um, you know, children's drag story time events. And um, I think, you know, when we when we see that sort of thing happen, you know, my take on it is that uh, fascist presence at any of these right-wing conservative events delegitimizes those events by default, um, but also when we then see the massive community pushback against, um, you know, against these horrible ideologies, it also shows that people are not willing to tolerate this. So um, I was wondering if you could speak to the importance of building from local community opposition um, to, you know, these these fascist kind of pushes, because I know that, you know, the work that you do draws on, a, you know, quite a widespread shared sentiment against fascism. Definitely. And on what you just said before as well, you think about all of the transphobia and racism that's pushed by the mainstream politicians and mainstream media. So much of that goes towards feeding these far-right groups. So... You know, earlier this year when Peter Dutton came out and said that migrants held responsibility for the ongoing housing crisis, straight away the neo-Nazis were protesting in the streets mm. around the housing question against migration. And we've seen similar things happening as well. Right now there's so much racism in the mainstream press towards Aboriginal people. We've actually also seen in the West, in Sunbury, uh, some racist defacement of plaques um, and Aboriginal heritage uh, kind of icon. Mm. All of that helps to embolden and encourage the far right, and it makes them feel like they have more of an audience when they mobilise. So it means that you know every single issue, every single form of oppression is interlinked, mm. and then those things also you know are linked with our battle against the far right. Yeah, and, and the question. Oh, of, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Hey. Just on the question of local organising as well. Yeah, I think it is important. The West is particularly multicultural and we want to embolden people out there to feel like they can stand up against racism and other people will be there when they do. Um, one of the, the best moments of my life in terms of anti-fascist protesting was in Coburg. Um, there was big far-right groups who wanted to march up Sydney Road, far up into Coburg, that passed all of the different uh, Muslim and Arab stores. And the far-right were saying, you know, we're going to drive Muslims out of this area. We mobilised a massive protest um, to chase them out of the streets. And when our protest got there, there were all of these young Arab men who had been kind of watching and looking at the far right and thinking, you know, who are these people? Can we do something about this? When they saw us get there, they joined in and called all of their mates. And so suddenly, you know, about 50 guys from the local area all joined in the protest and were running with us chasing these Nazis out of their local area. It's a really empowering sentiment and something that makes people feel strong. And that's what we want to do, make oppressed people feel strong. 
A hundred percent. And to to build on this strength that people already have and, you know, those feelings of concern and opposition that people already have and to let them know that, you know, there's widespread solidarity and folks will be out there to back them on the streets. Um, exactly. Now, just to wrap up, um, can you tell us a little bit about the rally that is coming up? Yeah, so we've called it as a big community rally to drive the Nazis out of sunshine. They've been organising in this gym. They're using it as a headquarters um, where they recruit young racist men to be neo-Nazis and white nationalists. We want to drive them out. So we're going to be meeting at the IGA in Sunshine West. Uh, We're going to be meeting there at 2 o'clock on the 23rd of September. And again, we're going to march on the gym, but this time with the aim of forcing them out and saying, don't you dare come back to this city, let alone this suburb. Yeah, definitely um, important to be sharing this information early so people can get coordinated, um, you know, make sure that people are in touch with their own networks uh, to keep each other safe, to spread the word about the rally, because, um, you know, at the end of the day, what is uh, attempts to recruit other fascists, if not a form of uh, grooming, I would say. So uh, people should be out on the streets opposing this horrible attempt to grow neo-Nazi ideology through having this gym going um, as as a hub where they can organize, albeit um, very pathetically. Um, and yeah, uh, we'll have all the details in our show notes for how you can find out more about the work of CARF and about that event on the 23rd. Thanks so much, Jazz. Thanks, Priya. And that was Jasmine from Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, who joined us to talk about an upcoming protest event that CARF is holding to drive the Nazis out of so-called Melbourne. So a few weeks ago, we had fellow CARF member Amelia on to discuss the planned protest against this white powerlifting meet held at the Legacy Boxing Gym in Sunshine West. And today, Jasmine recapped what went down on the day, and we spoke about the importance of building a more sustained and widespread movement against fascism in Melbourne, as well as a protest coming up on Saturday, the 23rd of September. Now, I'll just clarify. Again, my reference to grooming there was a um, a little jab at uh, the way that fascists and transphobes have been using that to talk about the way that trans and gender diverse people in the queer community in general, just by being who we are, are in fact uh, negatively impacting young people. And what I'm saying here is recruiting people to the far right is actually a form of ideological grooming um, that we should be genuinely concerned about rather than listening to those dog whistling uh, you are listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. Even with racist views Spreading all 
across the land. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we are now joined by Professor Nicholas Davis, who's an industry professor in emerging technology at the University of Technology, Sydney, as well as co-director of UTS Human Technology Institute, along with Professor Edward Santo. And Nick is joining us to speak about what it means to regulate the use of artificial intelligence in Australia, including the regulatory mechanisms that we already have in place pertaining to AI. So earlier this week, Nicholas co-authored a conversation piece with Ed Santo and Sophie Farthing, head of the policy lab at the Human Technology Institute, which provided further insights into the tech sector's backflip on regulation and the issue of enforcing both existing and future regulatory mechanisms in the face of increasingly widespread AI use across various sectors of Australian industry and society. The Human Technology Institute is a new initiative situated at UTS, which aims to build Australia's capabilities around the ethical and responsible use of artificial intelligence. Good morning, Nick. Good morning, Priya. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. So I might start with something that happened a little bit earlier in the year. So yourself and Lauren Solomon were both leads on the State of AI Governance Report, which was released earlier this year and explored the state of AI uptake and governance in Australia across a diverse range of sectors. So to begin with, can you tell us a bit about some of the industries or intra-organizational areas in Australia where you're seeing a rapid increase in the use of AI? Sure. I think every industry in Australia is rapidly increasing its investment in AI, partly driven by uh, a huge amount of interest in the latest techniques such as generative AI. But in reality, um, you know, we spoke to hundreds of companies and government organisations, civil society organisations, uh, and while about two-thirds of them said that they were either currently using or expanding their use of AI systems, when we dived a little bit deeper into that, uh, we found that you know, it was difficult to find an organisation that wasn't using AI in some form. Um, of course, because AI is such a broad area, and uh, even something like um, root optimization software, the you know the use of um, of translation systems online, uh, cybersecurity systems, they often rely heavily on on AI. Mm. Uh, but when we talked about you know what were the really hot areas of expansion, um, customer service, marketing, human resources, um, and back office kind of administrative processes were probably where most organizations are spending a lot of time thinking about how to use AI in new ways. Mm, yeah, I think it is. Um, I think it's something that, you know, as as consumers, um, a lot of people might be familiar with uh, hitting a wall in terms of customer service with systems that have been automated. Um, and I think there are also, you know, those broader concerns about digital rights and privacy that um, that this this raises, you know, for for those areas that um, AI might may be interfacing with more sensitive data. So um, the report that we've been discussing notes that far from 
operating in a regulatory vacuum, the use of AI in Australia is actually subject to a range of different types of regulations. So could you outline some of the regulatory mechanisms we already have in place that bear on the use of AI with uh, maybe a particular emphasis on those concerns of digital rights, privacy and surveillance? Sure. Um, Yeah, it's a real misnomer, uh, I guess, coming from public discussions of AI that Australia doesn't have uh, AI laws, because while we don't have specific laws addressing AI systems at the moment, not yet at least, um, we do have a a huge range of laws that govern and apply to organisations as they use AI. And as you point out, some of those relate to privacy and surveillance. Uh, so we have, you know, the Privacy Act, and uh, in Victoria there is the uh, the Surveillance Devices Act, which protects against optical and data and tracking and listening surveillance, etc., in the workplace and and in other contexts as well. Um, so, so any organisation deploying AI, you know, probably first and foremost needs to be looking to its privacy obligations. And given that the federal government is pushing now forward with um, discussions on privacy reform and, and the Attorney General released a report on, on that recently, um, I think it's really likely that, 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 that you know, that be an area of greater focus. But equally, look, consumer protection, kind of misleading conduct and uh, all the work that the ACCC does, uh, work health and safety where systems might be able to harm someone, discrimination law and the rights around um, uh, around making sure that people are, are treated fairly, uh, you know, as a regulator from the, you know, the, the Human Rights Commission, etc. These all apply to AI systems. Um, they haven't been enforced yet, Priya, to the extent that, you know, those of us working in this area would like to see. But nevertheless, they're there and they, they constitute a real meaningful obligation for organisations. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it has been quite interesting as well, considering that there's been uh, regulatory pushback from the the tech sector for a while, um, you know, and this idea that uh, the tech industry is pushing the frontiers of uh, of development and tech utopianism uh, needs to proceed before adequate regulation can be in place. And now, you know, re- in the piece that you co-authored for the conversation this week with Ed Santo and Sophie Farthing, you've noted there's been a recent backflip uh, on AI regulation where people like Sam Altman, the chief executive of ChatGPT, has all of a sudden become a new advocate for tech regulation. So why the sudden change and what does this have to do with the increasing use of large language models like ChatGPT? I think there's a, a few things at, at play here. Um, and the first one is that um, tech companies like everyone else, like government and those of us, uh, you know, who, who, who just are consumers of technology, uh, I think we're realizing how low the levels of trust are um, in uh, technologies uh, that, that can be used to manipulate or, um, or track us. Uh, you know, so when we speak to Australians about um, specific uses like facial recognition technology or, or even just AI in general, um, really it's fewer than a third of people um, say, yeah, yeah, I, I trust those systems to look after my benefits and I, I think they're broadly they're broadly okay. So two-thirds of Australians are, are really in the camp of, gosh, we actually need some more protection here and we don't trust mm-hmm. the sector or the technologies to do the right thing for us. Um, so, so that's obviously a big incentive for um, for tech companies and others to say, well, you know, we want to make sure that we, mm. we reverse that. Um, another one is that, of course, um, some tech companies are um, uh, fairly self-interested in new forms of regulation because they're already they've already developed uh, some of these big technologies and they um, they they're able to uh, cope with regulation. Mm. Um, so it does remain with. OpenAI and others, it does remain to be seen how serious that call is for broad-based regulation as opposed to kind of fuzzy off-in-the-future 
type of um, uh, of controls, uh, and that's why you know. Uh, Professor Santo and Sophie Farthing and Lauren Solomon and I uh, are really working on these projects to say, let's look after the law and the obligations right now and make sure that uh, that organisations are, are feeling that enforcement and feeling that obligation uh, right now in terms of um, meeting their, their duties. Yeah, I think um, it is interesting to see um, this this backtracking or, or, or change in tack from, uh, from organisations like ChatGPT where uh, they have been able to, I guess, develop within an environment of poor regulatory enforcement um, and are now saying that they're comfortable for, you know, regulations to apply and, and be enforced once they're in a position to kind of hold their own um, as as that happens. Now, um, I'm, war- I'm wondering um, as well about uh, the identification of violations and enforceability of sanctions in relation to regulations. So, um, you know, I'm wondering, example, for uh, about concerns we've seen about AI-generated media pieces by News Corp for some local reporting, but also about the use of AI within the public sector and how infringements in this area can be prevented or managed if they arise like another RoboDebt-type uh, disaster. So um, how can these issues be better addressed? And um, do you have any thoughts um, on that? Yeah, certainly. Look, I, I think the first thing here is... Um, I, I mean, from the perspective of helping Australians and uh, ensuring that Australians can enforce their rights uh, in this area, we do need transparency when organisations are using AI systems. Um, most importantly, uh, when those systems actually affect uh, a legal right or have a, um, a, a legal effect on someone. So granting or denying access to a service or um, having a, like a decision that someone might base their, uh, their life on that has a significant financial effect, et cetera. And, and those are the kind of, um, of areas where, you know, for example, the consumer competition authorities would step in and say, uh, look, if you're um, if you're uh, hiding the fact that you're using an AI system in a way that, that makes someone rely on it to their own detriment, or if you're um, uh, if you if you're using an AI system deliberately or recklessly to mislead people, as was the case with um, the federal court's finding in Trivago uh, a couple of years ago, now mm. um, it's you know you're going to be you're going to be held to a, a account for that. Um, but for that account holding to to exist, people need to know that they've been hurt, and so that that transparency and that right to understand how a decision was made, or um, whether or not, and what role um, an AI played in that decision, uh, um, is really important. Um, and, and our approach has been to say, um, you know, particularly for, for for systems of high consequence like facial recognition, we, we probably need a specific provision either in the Privacy Act or in separate legislation that says when these systems are being used, um, you as a consumer um, have the right to know and you as a consumer uh, or citizen resident have a right to redress and can bring an action. Yeah, definitely. Um, And I think uh, transparency really is key here. And then also making sure that when people do bring an action that is meaningfully dealt with. Uh, Now, I guess uh, just in view of wrapping up, can you point to any examples of international best practice for digital rights and privacy protections, as well as other protections pertinent to AI use that Australia could be learning from? Yeah, I, I think um, 
the first, the first thing I'd say is that no one's got it completely right here. You know, China's going a very um, kind of rules-based, top-down approach. The, the EU's got a kind of a single act which um, sets different risk categories but um, is, also has lots of weaknesses of its own. Um, I think that the international best practice um, that we should be following is, is getting basic rights um, well dealt with first. So really following through broad-based privacy protections, um, surveillance protections, um, protections around the, the right of consumers, et cetera, is probably the most important. And a lot of that is just um, putting into a pl- in place uh, reforms already underway in Australia and, and enforcing our, our current laws. Uh, and then after that, I think a risk-based approach uh, where we really distinguish between how these systems can and do harm people and um, put additional burdens on uh, people designing and providing those higher risk systems is uh, the most logical way to go because at the end of the day, we, we do want to get the most out of AI. We, we're not anti-technology. We're pro-technology, but we're, we're pro-safe and responsible technology. Mm, and I guess it remains to be seen how this unfolds, but uh, we look forward to hopefully uh, you know having folks from the Institute on again. Thank you so much, Nick. Thank you, Priya. And that was Professor Nicholas Davis, Industry Professor of Emergency, uh, sorry, Emerging Technology at the University of Technology, Sydney, and co-director of UTS's Human Technology Institute, along with Professor Edward Santo. And Nick spoke with us about what it means to regulate the use of artificial intelligence in Australia, including the regulatory mechanisms we already have in place pertaining to AI. Now, I reckon we might jump straight into our next interview if we're if we're all ready. Um, so, Spike, do you want to take it away with an introduction? Yeah. Hi. So last week um, we we invited. Uh, well, this is I guess this is an extension of last week's discussion um, uh, during the homelessness week special. Uh, we we're going to have Rahu on renters and housing union. Man, do you want Yeah. So yeah, we invited. We didn't have time for Rahu last week, so we invited them on this week um, So to discuss Rahu's campaigns, advocacy work, and also get a chance to speak to him about um, yesterday's housing announcements, by the what, what the housing announcements by National Cabinet really mean, and to touch on the negative impacts of artificial intelligence in the hands of landlords and, real, and the real estate industry. So firstly, welcome, JR. How are you doing? How are you going? Not all right yourself. Not too bad. All right, mate. Tell us a bit about Rahu. Well, Rahu is um, the Renters and Housing Union. Uh, we, no, we we are the Renters and Housing Union, and uh, we are a members-run and based union. Um, we help our members uh, figure out the complexities of real estate laws and um, how they can, their rights and how they can deal with their landlord or as a case may be, the government if they're with public housing. Okay, so your your mission is is it is it basically to empower individual renters? Is yeah, that yeah? yeah. So and, knowledge is power, after all. And the goal of the organisation is just to empower individual renters. Yeah, it's um, you sign on with us. We uh, tell you, you tell us the problem that you're having. Uh, we try to fix it. Sometimes it's as simple as your landlord has broken the law by uh, giving you a second rent increase of the uh, of uh, the year, um, and so most likely they haven't uh, put the papers in with the appropriate authority. So we come in and go uh, 
this isn't registered, it, it's illegal, uh, you've, here's VCAT's decision, you can't raise the rent. I guess one of the questions I would have liked to have asked you last week... Speak into <laughs> one of the questions I would so last week was homelessness week. What what role do you see as a what, what role does Rahu have during a, like a week like homelessness week? What do you just what would you see your role as? Um, well, I spent the beginning of homeless week um, helping one of uh, our members deal with the fact that they were evicted by the state. Um, uh, we helped to find a new home, um, and we uh, annoyed the government in the process. Um, now, hopefully, we can get, we can uh, help with policies and whatnot, and create the appropriate recommendations, such as with the uh, national cabinet that happened, um, to help the laws change in general, so that. Uh, there are houses. There are. There's more public housing, etc. So there it doesn't have to be homelessness, because I feel like that's the first step. Is if there's enough public housing, that means that there doesn't have to be homelessness, because everybody, the government can just provide those with the most need a home. And so, how how do you feel about the announcements made by the national cabinet yesterday? Uh, or how uh, does Rahu feel? I guess uh, right now. We, uh, I only learnt that they had officially met and talked at seven eighteen this morning. So, okay. Um, I've only just read the what they've uh, agreed to, um, and it. I'm a bit concerned by a few of it, a bit of it. I don't like the fact that there's no rent caps, because if without rent caps, a landlord can just at that one time of year that they can raise rent, they can just raise rent to whatever they want. They're in charge of what the market rate is, and if they and their only incentive is maximise their profits. Yeah. By maximising their profits, they create homelessness. Yeah, and I mean, I, I guess um, with the announcements that were made, it also seems like... Um, pretty weak in terms of trying to get things to the regulatory standards that already exist in Victoria, even when Rahu knows that um, despite the the changes that came in in 2021 to renters' rights, there's still a lot of concerns about enforcing things like um, how do you challenge a no-grounds eviction, that kind of Hmm. thing. Well, yeah, one of our things was there shouldn't be allowed to be no uh, fault. You know, there should always be a reason. You should always have to go to VCAT. You should always get the, uh, you know, you have signed a contract, right? Therefore, you should be able to live in this house at this amount with these rules until the next contract, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. What would you have liked to have heard from, from from the National Cabinet yesterday? Like again, a, a, a rent cap, if okay. not a rent freeze. I would have liked um, more regulations on landlords. I uh, would have in, uh, created. I would have loved to have heard of an authority that actually kept track of uh, landlords in general. Use the UK system, which, pr- if I if I understand correctly, promotes the idea that landlords actually have to do their job correctly, or else th- they can't be a landlord anymore. Oh, so regular, so like a fit and proper landlord test or something. Yeah, yeah. I think that's super interesting. Also, because I'm thinking about the the 
conversations about AI that we've been having across this week as well. And I know that concerns have been raised for a while around digital rights and privacy of renters for people that have to interface with platforms like Snug, where, you know, you have to pull up, put all of your information into this black box that then um, draws a lot of data about you um, from different platforms and then assesses your fitness as a renter and your match for properties. So I was wondering... Um, if you could talk about some of the concerns in terms of renters' rights from the tech space too. Um, so I can't say I'm uh, very knowledgeable on this subject, this specific subject, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, I just – why is it that you have to put out – give all of your information to a data harvesting site to get a house? Mm-hmm. I, oh, I hear you. Yeah. 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 Sorry, go on. Uh, I didn't mean to. Again, it's, it, as a data harvesting company, their job is to profit off your information. So, but yeah, that's as far as I really understand yeah. AI in regards of uh, uh, housing. No, totally. Is but- that how AI works? Is that by collecting the more information it adds to the database of information and so that adds to the knowledge of Is that how it works? I mean, I think part of this is like when we look at things like Snug in the property tech sphere, um, what we're seeing is there is a huge amount of collection of information about renters. And sometimes like people don't necessarily have to be legally obliged to provide this information, but they feel like they're obliged. And so by collecting and aggregating this information and developing a digital profile, then landlords are able to screen for what they think will be the perfect tenant, um, which just, I think, speaks to a failure of enforcement of, of renters' rights in the digital space. And, and that's kind of what my concern was there. Um, but yeah, I, I guess, uh, do you want to ask oh. another yeah, I guess you want to speak. You were, you were talking earlier, or we, when we when you dropped in, mm. when you came in, you said you mentioned that you just came back from a campaign. What you mentioned? Oh yeah, so I've been uh, helping out a lot with uh, the Brack Beacon campaign, um, right? Which is basically Barrack Beacon, which has been standing since the eighties, is being knocked down and replaced with, as far as we understand, about seventy five percent luxury private market housing mm-hmm. um and the remaining 20 25 is going to be uh some variation of social housing and affordable housing now despite what it sounds like affordable housing isn't affordable and social housing doesn't exist uh, there is not a single building in this country that is consor- considered a social house social housing as as far as we understand it is a smokescreen to destroy public housing and replace it with yep. community housing, community housing being owned by uh, not-for-profit groups, mm-hmm. um, which at best is a business with rules, uh, with different set of rules rather, and at worst is just a tax scam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because this gets really obscured in in media discussions of uh, you know things like the big housing bill. Mm. Um, and so I'm, I was also, yeah, interested to hear your thoughts on, cause one of the, the national cabinets, um, things was really just increasing the supply of, um, of market mm. rate private rentals and why that can, cons- um, you know, this idea of supply, but only in the private market is something that needs to be challenged. So 
yeah, I read that they were going to do 1.2 more million houses. Um, I think that's just... Uh, depending on how they do it, cool. Uh, the federal government also announced that they were going to uh, relieve zoning laws as well. So maybe they're going to build up, not out, which is fine, but when I hear 1.2 million extra homes, I'm thinking urban sprawl. I'm thinking... Uh, I'm thinking Campbelltown in New South Wales is is going to now be centre Sydney when I hear that, central Sydney. Mm. Um, I, I hear, when I hear that, I think, okay, we are going to turn to the US yeah. where you need mm. to get a car and drive mm. on the highway just to get to your job. Yeah, and- I, I guess can I just, can I I think I what I hear is a real distraction from the issue that you know that property you know like the last the last census and I I mentioned this last there were one million empty properties in mm. Australia and so the properties are there and I think it's the way that you know again it comes back to how um, resources and and how, and homes are distributed in a sort of capitalist sort of system yeah. that's the issue it's not the lack of properties it's the way that they're distributed mm. and right now you know you can have one person with ten houses and negative gearing and capital gains tax sort of um, sort of yeah tax arrangements which make it easier for people to accumulate and actually incent like creates an incentive for people to own more yeah 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 i think for so long as housing is a commodity uh it's not a it, it, it is just an investment and therefore it cannot be a home if you've got 20 homes or you've got 20 houses you've got 20 property investments and you sell out 17 of them uh then your job is to make sure that people are giving you money in exchange for shelter yeah. as opposed to it being a home. Um, when you hear there are a million houses on census night that are empty, it's because uh, the property managers uh, don't want to flood the market. They want to maximize those profits by releasing it maybe two or three months later down the track when, you know, if if profits are dropping in this area, then... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thank you so much for taking the time to to speak with us about this, because I think you've really shown that um, the idea of housing as a commodity and housing as a right are like fundamentally at odds with each other. So, Mm. yeah, really appreciate you coming on, JR. Mm. No problem. It was good being here. Yeah. And um, thank you very much, Spike. Thanks to all of our listeners. And um, we will catch you next week on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 a.m. And uh, stay tuned. Have a good week. CCR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.